Welcome to Behind the Paranormal with Paul and Ben Eno. What is the Ozark Howler? How about the the main goat man? Are there really monsters roaming the quiet North American countryside? Hello and welcome to the 799th broadcast of Behind the Paranormal with Paul and Ben Eno here on WOON, 12.40 a.m. And this is our 12th, our 12th year on the air. Oh, and now we're on FM as well, so it's 99.3 FM. Right. Uh, and you can also listen to us via a couple other other things. And uh, if you have any emails, we invite you to, uh, or if you have any questions, you can reach us via phone, which is 401-766-1240, or email paul at behindtheparanormal.com. You can contact us by Facebook and Twitter, or Instagram as well. Okay, Jason Offit, would you ask him to turn on his video, please? Oh, sure. Jason Offit is a newspaper journalist turned professor and cryptid researcher. He was born in Oric, Missouri, where he eventually served as mayor. Jason was interested in weird things from a young age. As a kid, he would look for Bigfoot prints in his backyard, have to ask him if he found any, and watched uh, for UFOs over his house. He now teaches journalism at uh, Northwest Missouri State University in Maryville, where he keeps the, he, quote, keeps the world safe from the forces of evil, unquote. His latest book, the subject of our discussion today, is Chasing American Monsters. So, Jason, uh, off it, welcome to Behind the Paranormal. Well, thanks for having me on. Oh, well, it's great to have I you. Don't know if, I don't know if I've been on in your state before. Oh, really? Well, you could put a sticker on your truck. Yes, exactly. I'm going to. Yeah, <laughs> it won't be very big. Rhode Island is not too big. Well, my truck's not very big either. Oh, okay, there you go. Oh, well, it right. works out just fine then. So we can't wait to hear about these crazy critters. So I guess let's start with uh, the Ozark ha- uh, Howler. Excuse me. <clears throat> what is that? Well, the, the Ozark Howler, and it's been uh, heard for uh, for you know 100, 100 plus years uh, in northern Arkansas and southern Missouri. Um, well, give, given the name, it howls. <laughs> it's it's uh, got a got a distinctive howl that's something between a uh, bobcat screech and a bull elk's bellow. I know there's a lot of area in between there, but it's it, that's how it's described. Uh, it, the, the, the scream is, and generally the beast is described as being about the size of a large dog uh, with the body of a bear, uh, the head of a head of a head of a dog. Uh, it's got some cat-like qualities, and it and it has horns. Uh, although it's never, uh, at least on record, attacked uh, attacked a person. Uh, people tend to blame. Uh, you know the death of small pets and, and small farm animals on the Ozark Howler. Huh. All right. Does anybody ever photograph this? Are there any recent sightings, or it's mainly the uh, auditory phenomenon? Well, mainly auditory, but uh, there have been some people who've uh, who've seen it uh, as late as I don't know the last fifteen twenty years. Huh. Well, time flies when you're having fun. I right. guess. How about the Maine Goat Man? Now, we're here, we're here in New England, and we have a lot of listeners in Maine that will be looking out their windows. So what was that about? Well, and actually, I want to I address something before I go on to the Goat Man. Sure. Um, you, about pictures, about, about photographs. Uh, because that, that's what a lot of people say, you know, well, if there's so many Bigfoot out there or there's so many lake monsters, how come somebody doesn't have a clear photograph or clear video? And, and one of the things uh, about these monsters, if you were out in the wild, and you were, you know, like face to face, like within, you know, 15 yards of the, you know, an eight, 
eight foot tall, seven hundred pound, you know, bipedal creature, would you pull out your phone and take a picture? Actually, I did. Um, I really? Tr- I tried that. <laughs> You're screwing my argument up. Well, the tr- well, no, no, no. Hey, hey we're old uh, newspaper hounds, the two of us here. So, uh, no, it was uh, September of six. Now, the, the listeners are familiar with the story, but I was, I was uh, in my truck. Naturally, as you may know, things never happen the way you expect them to. So, we had, I had cameras set up for strange lights in the sky. This is in Pennsylvania, and because that's what we've seen the, the last time. Off to my right, were closed, cold truck window. There was the figure with huge uh, sort of a knees. I remember the knees and legs all covered with, with a brown fur lifting up and down, and its head was bowed as if looking for something in the tall grass, you know, about 15 yards away. So um, they, I lifted up the infrared camera, no signature because of the cold window. I went to get out, uh, hold up um, another camera, and my wife calls. So that was uh, the closest I ever came to divorce, needless to say. But anyway, uh, pl- please, uh, sorry for interrupting your your uh, your um, solemn uh, statements here that are very interesting. Please. Well, well, right, but I mean, let me just say, most normal people, I think. <laughs> well, I, haven't, about, I haven't been normal for a long time. Yeah. Well, and you know, I you know, you about about the old news hounds. I I might take take the picture because you know what that's what I've been trained to do. But most people are, are, are going to take their human instincts and just get the heck out of there. Hmm. Yeah, I mean, I, I, I would think, I, I mean, th- I think a lot of people, instead of pulling their phone out, you know, clicking on, clicking on the, uh, you know, the, the icon to bring, the, fo- to bring the, the camera up, or, you know, take the time to, you know, swipe their password in. You're right. You're <laughs> absolutely right. Yeah. Right, right. Anyway, that's just, that's just my argument. No, but, very good point. Very good in, point. Anyway, back to, uh, yeah, the, the, the goat man, and it's, uh, let's not contain him to just any any state because there are a number of states with a goat man sighting. Sure. Uh, uh, West Virginia, and actually this, um, the one in West Virginia has been in the TNT area of mm-hmm. West Virginia, of, of you know near uh, uh, Mount or Point Pleasant, where uh, Mothman in the same area Mothman was sighted back in the late '60s. Sure. Uh, the uh, the Fort Worth, Texas. Um, monster is a goat man and uh there have been some uh, reports in southern missouri as, as well and, and these things tend to be the same type of creature which is uh a bipedal goat with with or a bipedal uh, sheep with horns um there are places where it's called sheep squatch which is a beautiful name which absolutely right yeah so it's it's sometimes it's got uh, hooves. Sometimes it's got hands and and, and feet, but it's generally described as a uh, as, as a bipedal uh, sheep or goat that um, you know tends to chase people out of its out of its area as an as an animal would if you were uh, you know in its in its territory. The uh, the one in Texas tends to pick up things and throw them at people like uh, used tires. <laughs> So uh, yeah, the the one thing that um, I've wanted to see, and and there haven't been many many reports uh, on this, is, is is a goat or sheep uh, sheep man that uh, that more resembles Pan from Greek mythology. But exactly. these are right; these are more sheep sheepish and less uh, less human. Yeah, well, that's one of the questions that arises. You know, the people who experience these things perhaps uh, were you know, every every all folklore has some grain of truth somewhere. You know, no matter how buried or how much baggage it has, and one wonders if uh, these um, 
phenomena that are, we're talking about today were experienced by our remote ancestors and resulted in the folklore. I mean, that seems kind of straightforward. Well, right, and, and this is one of the things that um, really annoys me about about Western science, and I'm, I'm not criticizing science whatsoever because uh, anything to do with the paranormal, be it crypto, cryptozoology through um, through uh, unidentified flying objects, is is I want science to figure these things out because that's where we're going to get the truth. However, uh, science operates as science operates, and one of the things it does tends to do is ignores folklore. Uh, it ignores what indigenous people say, uh, and this is this is you know true all around the world. Why not listen to these people? You know who's who's saying they haven't experienced thing things. The um, on the island of, of Flores is is a great example. Uh, they had you know uh, legends of these little humans that would steal you know infants and small children from villages and, and eat them. And, you know, that was treated as legend uh, or in, in folklore until uh, scientists discovered uh, the remains of what they, they dubbed hobbits, which were these three-foot-tall, fully-grown humans that had lived on the island. And now it's an accepted part of science. And the same thing happened in the Congo with the Billy Ape that uh, sounded crazy by Western standards, but, uh, you know, it was discovered to be discovered to be true. We should... We should listen to indigenous peoples. That's, that's oh, absolutely. I'll, I'll beat that drum all day long. Yeah. Oh, me too. Uh, one of the issues with science, Jason, and, and I have the greatest respect for it, the, the the disciplined thinking that it can bring to a field as chaotic as this one uh, is very valuable. However, uh, it has been pointed out by certain other guests, and, and I suspect there may be a point there uh, that that some of this, anyway, in the paranormal field in general, is outside of science in the sense that science, with the exception of, of particle physics and theoretical physics, is essentially uh, an exercise in materialism, which may not be an accurate representation of the universe, and certainly not maybe the multiverse, if we may use that term. Uh, where Do you think science will ever accept the reality of the goat man, or anything of this kind, or... Um, Things that, that, that might uh, indicate, well, you know, what do the natives say? What, what do the First Nations say about these creatures? They're shapeshifters, and they move from world to world. So, I mean, how, do you de- how does science deal with that, do you think? Right. They're, they're only going to be able to deal with a, uh, a, parent, uh, a creature that, you know, cryptid. They're only going to be able to deal with a cryptid if it's hit by a car. Uh, well, or, yeah, okay, probably right, yeah. Exactly. Yeah. Well, I mean, as in Scotland. Uh, there was uh, the the, uh, the big cats, and I've been involved in that personally, that, that research, uh, although many years ago, uh, the big cat phenomenon in England, you know, the uh, black beast of Exmoor and things of that kind. They didn't believe there were pumas or cougars or whatever they are or uh, loose around the countryside until somebody in Scotland pancaked one with his car, and there it was. So they couldn't deny it. Right, uh, right, exactly. I mean, that's that's what that's the whole thing with uh, you know with a goat man or with uh, with Bigfoot or with a lake monster. The thing has to be uh, either killed or captured and brought in front of uh, of science to dissect and and uh, you know to declare that you know what this whole Loch Ness thing mon- you know Loch Ness monster thing has been right all these centuries. Um, you know, it is true. So I mean, which I don't want to see any of these things killed. Sure. But they're going to have to be in order for science to prove them as uh, prove them as real. You sound a little like Jim Lansdale on Killing Bigfoot. We yeah, had an uproar when we had him on the show. 
What? Kill one. <laughs> I mean, if you really, really want uh, want it, want these things to be proven, you're you're gonna have to gonna have to kill one. And you know, people will say, "Well, let's tranquilize it." You know that that that'll that'll bring it in alive, and and people know tranquilizers from uh, from TV shows. That's why they didn't uh, tranquilize Har- Harambe the gorilla when that when the four year old fell into the enclosure. Um, I don't remember how many years ago that was now. I remember that but, though. Yeah, yeah, but the tranquilizers take a long time to kick in. So if a Bigfoot was seen in the in the woods and tranquilized, it'd be miles away before it actually fell over, and then we you know would lose track of it. What if they're not? Uh, what if, what if they're not entirely physical creatures? What constitutes proof outside of materialism? See, and it, yeah, and this is this is where a lot of this is going right now. The popular uh, opinion on on people who are interested in the paranormal is that Bigfoot is interdimensional. Uh, that's it's the same with uh, with UFOs that they're not. Uh, nuts and bolts craft that come here from another solar system that they're interdimensional or they come from earth maybe a future earth maybe a hidden civilization earth but they come from here and and i tend to think of things um a little bit simpler i mean i i right now am still in the flesh and blood bit blood bigfoot camp i'm still in um the nuts and bolts ufo craft camp because i want those things those are the easiest ex- explanations. I want those yeah, disproven right, first. Yeah, yeah. yeah. I, I'm not opposed to going with interdimensional Bigfoot, but we still don't know, other than quantum physics, which is just mathematics, we don't know that there are other dimensions. You know, we haven't proven that physically by going there, so I'm not willing to, to take that step. You know, until we until we exhaust all the other uh, you know terrestrial possibilities. Okay, I hear you, Jason, but I don't know if I agree with that, that we haven't gone there. We may be uh, there are some who argue that we go through there millions of times a day, passing membranes, things of this kind. But be that as it may, let's uh, let's move on to a question from uh, Peter in South America. Ben, if you would be so kind. Sure. So, Peter writes to us. Uh, can you please ask Jason to go into full detail on the giant Thunderbird case in Alaska? Uh, the sighting was made by a pilot. And also, did you uh, speak to the witness directly? Uh, no, I didn't speak to the witness direct- directly, and he's referring to a um, uh, a case in, in 2002, a, uh, a pilot, I think it was 2002, it was around, it was around that time, uh, a pilot named John Bowker. Uh, was was flying a small plane and he looked uh, outside uh, you know, the, the window because he saw another plane approaching and it wasn't another plane it was a bird that was about the same size of the plane that he was flying the the wingspan was somewhere between fourteen and twenty feet and he watched this bird in a bit of bit of shock of course because birds aren't that big they haven't been since uh, you know the the last ice age. Um, or before the last ice age, and the thing finally banked off and 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 went away. Um, that's not the only uh, case. That is the the most famous case in Alaska. But there uh, was a case in uh, just two years ago. Uh, a woman named Tamitha Bauer uh, from uh, I think she was from Juneau, and she was going. She was driving to a movie theater, and. Uh, a bird that wingspan was wider or as wide as the uh, the road she was on flew overhead and then disappeared. She said the thing was enormous, uh, about the size of an airplane, which that that would be. Um, she reported it to the to the local newspaper. Uh, 
nobody else had seen it, which that tends to happen with uh, with, with Bigfoot and UFO encounters as, as well. But uh, it was it was the same uh, same description as the the, the bird the the pilot saw. And if any living creature survived the uh, the, the last ice age, I think Alaska would be a good place for it to hide. Hmm. Just saying. Yeah. Okay. Uh, let, I'm going to take see if we can hold up the book here, Ben. I love this book. Yeah. You know, there, any fool can write a book today, and usually does. But I mean, you you are an excellent writer. I can tell you're a journalist. Maybe I'm a little. I am too. So maybe I'm a little biased in that way. But it's it's a pleasure to read. It's it's no nonsense, and I just love it. And so, some of the monsters in here I've never heard of. So if you could tell us about the Snallygaster. Yeah, you put that under the Maryland. It's organized by state, which I think is it does have a drawback, as you mentioned earlier. But I think it's also very convenient for people uh, to, you know, a quick reference uh, for their own areas. So the Snallygaster, what the hey is that? Right, and th- thank you, thank you for the kind words. And and uh, yeah, I, I, I that, that's how I designed the book, state by state, because you know I've I've read a lot of regional books, even books outside my region, and I, I wanted a book for. Every region, so that that's why I covered the you know, the entire United States. Well done. Yeah, thank you. Uh, but the the Snallygaster uh, is a uh, uh, this has been seen since the uh, since the 1700s. Uh, Virginia residents have seen this, uh, and it's been seen all the way up to you know uh, up to Massachusetts. Um, it's uh, described as a giant reptilian bird, and it's main uh you know thing thing it would eat would be uh would be pets uh and uh and small livestock uh and you know every once in a while it uh, you know had the taste a taste for kids it would pick up a pick up a small child playing out in the yard uh it was uh looked somewhat like a, a pterodactyl it had a wingspan of uh you know a little bit less than maybe 30 feet it had a long beak and tentacles that came mm. out of its mouth that would wrap around its its prey and drag it up to the mouth. Uh, it smelled like uh, smelled like carrion, and uh, the talons uh, were like steel. The the other um, the big thing about the, the Snallygaster is its its shrieks sounded like a train whistle, which hmm. I'm sure would be a nice warning that uh, you know <laughs> something's coming. Yeah, you can't miss that. Yeah, yeah. Uh, that, no, it's the five hundred eight Snallygaster. Yeah, we better get a little Joey out of the yard. <laughs> right, we <laughs> ought to. Uh, Snallygaster. We ought. We ought to. Um, I don't. It just reminds me of the the Van Meter Visitor uh, of Ohio, Iowa. Oh, oh, Iowa. Iowa. Oh, you're right. I beg your pardon. Yes, Iowa. And uh, th- that uh, had a, a characteristic that I thought you might have some uh, thoughts about. Uh, the uh, it seemed to have a light at the end of its beak, you know, a, a luminous um, object or something, and then uh, that that goes into the idea of the uh, self-luminous eyes of like Mothman or something. I mean, what what are your thoughts on that? I mean, could this be artificial? Right. Well, it's 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 interesting. Yes, the uh, the, the Van Meter monster uh, was was pterodactyl-like, but it had a horn. Oh, the on horn. Its head yes. Yes. That that had you know like a headlight on it, huh. and. Uh, yeah, I mean, it, it kind of reminded me of the the anglerfish type uh, type light. Um, hmm. At least that that's what it uh, you know popped into my head. Um, it, 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 the thing is, it didn't act artificial. But what other type of animals you know, are self luminous? Self luminous. You know, again, you said Mothman. Yes, it had 
glowing red eyes. Uh, there have been a number of creatures that have, have you know been reported with with glowing red eyes as uh, as as well. So I mean. Yeah, I, I, I really, I'm really hesitant to say it wasn't uh, wasn't a natural phenomenon. But you know, we're talking about a pterodactyl-looking creature that lives in a cave. So, I think anything goes at this point. Yeah, I think you're right. Uh, I'm thinking of another case in Scotland uh, that it, it's not in your book. It's in our our. We had a, a book on cryptids in 2017, and uh, this an entire family stood by one of the small lakes, glacial lakes you have there. And they saw a, uh, I suppose a, a Loch Ness-like plesiosaur-type creature uh, swimming um, at length on the surface of the water. But it, according to them, it had no eyes. So, uh, ergo, you know, one wonders: did it swim up somehow from from the depths of, um, uh, you know, submerged uh, caves uh, where animals and fish have been found with no eyes? Not animals, but fish. Yeah, there you go. From yeah. From what I remember, I might be completely wrong on that. Well, I mean, there are. Uh, that, that's one of the uh, uh, one of the explanations some people give as to why don't you know if if the Loch Ness monster exists, why isn't it seen more often? And uh, there are apparently caves under Loch Ness. Um, you know that, and that's that's an explanation with the, with a lot of lakes that you know these creatures hide in caves underneath the lake so maybe yeah maybe this was was something that uh had been there for uh, you know spent its entire life underground and, and didn't have any eyes and yeah, just possibly, yeah. find its way to the surface yeah well okay uh so another uh, one in, in the book and the, the book is full of, of fascinating uh creatures here colossal claude love that name <laughs> yeah. who's colossal claude from oregon uh, yeah you're right, uh, colossal uh, Claude from Oregon. Um, it's what's well, a water monster. Uh, it's now um, uh, the encounters have been since I think the uh, 1930s, 1920s or 30s. Uh, it's a sea serpent, uh, and this is one of the one of the things with sea serpents. The uh, the size is always always misinterpreted. I mean, it's the, people say it's either like 15 or 50 feet long. Uh, that's kind of a big difference there, uh, but it's um, tends to uh, tends to uh, uh, be seen in the uh, waters of the mouth of the Columbia River that dump out into the ocean. Um, it was uh, yeah again when it was first reported, there was a uh, um, a light ship called the Columbia River that saw this creature in the uh, in the, in the ocean. Um, it was swimming again at, at the mouth mouth of the water. It's uh, Got a long neck, or it had, had a long neck. Uh, the body was was round, uh, like a it was like a serpent, but the, it, the the body got bigger than a serpent's would, and it had a tail. Uh, looked looked kind of like a long bloated snake. Uh, it has been uh, you know seen since then. Uh, the biggest uh, evidence they've had of it was uh, the Shell Oil Company was doing a. Uh, uh, you know, looking looking for a place to to drill for oil, and they had a video camera underneath the un, underneath their boat. This was in the in the early '60s, and they caught a picture of a 15-ish foot long serpent encrusted with barnacles that was swimming hmm. underneath the boat. So, you know, it I'm guessing it might have been an oarfish, but uh, they didn't. Uh, they were never able to identify it. Yeah, this colossal Claude sounds like a French wrestler. Uh, yeah, yeah, <laughs> absolutely. <laughs> Andre so, the Giant, Colossal Claude, you know, they're <laughs> together. 
<laughs> Absolutely. What uh, are the uh, the critters that I think we, we've uh, rubbed elbows with in the Bridgewater Triangle uh, near here in uh, nearby Massachusetts? Uh, the puckwudgies. And I was surprised that, not surprised, but I was pleased, I suppose, to see that they come up in a couple of places in, in your book, uh, Massachusetts and uh, I, I, um, I'm having a blank here. Um, New Hampshire? New Hampshire, yes, you're yeah. right. Okay. Um, what have you found out about puckwudgies and, and uh, what, what stories have you heard? I mean, we, we uh, believe we might have a photograph or two, so I don't know. But. All right, the puckwudgies are, are part of... Um, Something to absolutely fascinate me uh, is the little people. Mm. Uh, I already talked about the ones in the in the island of Flores. The uh, the hobbits were they were dubbed uh, Homo florensis. Now that's in Indonesia, uh, right? It's that, that's in Indonesia, but okay. uh, the, I, the stories of little people are worldwide. I mean, they're all throughout Asia, and and you know, in Europe we have the you know. Uh, goblins and and kobolds and and tomtars and elves and things like this uh there are legends in 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 south america and there are a lot of uh, native american legends of little people and the 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 funny thing is the the all the native american and north american legends are the same which just blows my mind so the puckwudgies uh are small two to two to three foot tall Mm -hmm. uh Human-like uh, uh, creatures, uh, big, big nose, big ears. Uh, their their skin is grayish. Uh, they are armed with bow, a bow and arrow. That they, they shoot poison arrows. Uh, they can also turn invisible and start spontaneous fires. So these creatures are mischievous. Uh, they're jealous of the big people uh, for one main reason: is that a uh, uh, there was a, a giant that took favor on the big people as opposed to the puckwudgies and they've been been envious ever ever since and uh, so they will try and trick the big people and get them lost in the woods uh, if they're you know feeling particularly ornery they will uh, you know yell for people to come come follow them and you know trick them into falling over cliffs uh, if they get angered, if they're disrespected in any way, they will, you know, steal children and set an entire village on fire. Um, they may also, you know, kill you by shooting you with a poison arrow. Hmm. Hey, that's a general description of, of, of a puckwudgie, and they come by different names all around the country. There's similar stories in, in North Carolina and in, in South Dakota and Utah, um, all over the place. And they're all the, the description and behavior is exactly the same. Exactly. Uh, well, we're going to take yeah. our bottom of the hour break here, uh, and uh, we are listening to "Behind the Paranormal" with Paul and Ben Eno on WON 1240 AM and 99.3 FM in New England's beautiful and haunted Blackstone River Valley. We'll be right back with our great guest Jason Offit in just a moment. Stick with us. Hi, this is Frank Prizes, and I'm host of It's Your Business Mondays at 2 p.m. We'll explore everything that's involved in business in this community. But you know what? Everything is about business. Tune in on Mondays here on ON Radio. Well, that was quick. I was back behind the paranormal with Paul and Ben Eno on WON Radio, AM and FM, uh, broadcasting from our lovely studio here in Woonsocket, Rhode Island. And we're talking today with Jason Offit, author of 
Chasing American Monsters, and Jason is a journalist turned professor, and uh, we're having a great conversation. So, Jason, uh, I'm sorry, I, if anything else to say on, on the uh, subject there, uh, I didn't mean to interrupt you. But, uh. Oh, well, no, you had a break. I understand that completely. No, the the, the last thing I was going to say is the, uh, the, the little people in, um, in, in South Dakota uh, made, the stories of them made such an impression on Lewis and Clark when they were, Traveling west on on their on their you know exploration mission that they took an hour and a half uh, trek to Spirit Mound, South Dakota, which is the highest spot within a hundred miles of, of that area, and uh, they were looking for the little people because you know the, the natives said that yeah they're really there. Uh, they didn't find anything, but Lewis and Clark went on a, went on a hunt to find the uh, to find the little people. Well, speaking of Native American legends, I guess this is a good transition into um, the Moon-Eyed people of the Appalachians in uh, North Carolina. So what what do you have to say about them? Well, the Moon-Eyed people, um, this was another uh, another case of people um, that really, really uh, ticked off the, uh, the Native Americans just because they were jerks. <laughs> um, That's fair. Okay, yeah. <laughs> The uh, you know it's we uh, the the Native Americans wouldn't have such a tragic history if people would have just left them alone. Uh, but anyway, uh, the Moonite people were a small uh, race of people with uh, humans with pale white skin, and they had long beards, and uh, they only came out at night. Uh, there is still a, a wall, uh, I think it's like 850 foot long stone wall at the border of North Carolina and Georgia that was built uh, around 500 AD that uh, apparently the Moon-Eyed people supposedly built. And, and, the, and the wall uh, goes from like two to six feet tall and it was put there because there was a war between the Moon-Eyed people and the Creek Indians. Uh, the Creek Indians wanted to get rid of the Moon-Eyed people and attack them during the full moon. And uh, the full moon was too bright for the, 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 the moon, Moon-Eyed people, and they were driven underground and, and sealed there. Um, you know, the, the, one of the questions is, where did these, you know, where did these legends come from? Mm. Uh, there are um, stories of, uh, you know, Welsh travelers that uh, that came to North America back in like 1100 A.D. Um, well, who knows? Maybe they made it to South Carolina and uh, did something offensive. Well, there's been uh, some speculation based on on the facial features of some of the some of the First Nations in uh, particularly in America uh, on the East Coast. The uh, natives tend to have more almost European features as opposed to, to some oriental features present in a lot of the western tribes, you know, uh, feeding the uh, the old idea that they, they you know, came over the land bridge from Siberia and all of a sudden settled uh, down the coast, west coast of America. And there, there's some question about that now, the, the presence of the natives having been probably longer than, than the uh, scholarly uh, speculation of the past. So, um, so it certainly does seem possible that... Uh, uh, settlers from from Europe, or or wayward people from Europe, or traders from Europe, and there's a lot of speculation about uh, pre prehistoric global trade being rather common. All you have to do is island hop across the northern Atlantic. So I don't know, whatever it may be, uh, that that might be one of the origins of of the legends of of um, uh, the moon-eyed people or white people with long beards or whatever. Uh, from, right, uh, which I, 
completely. Yeah, that I, I agree with, and I don't know why there isn't more, you know, mainstream science dipping into things like this. I mean, with with uh, you know DNA testing, that could be determined mm. in you know very little time. Uh, with with you know you know a, a past global civil civiliz- global civilization, uh, there are. Um, you know, there, there were traces of, of, of cocaine and nicotine found in Egyptian mummies. Those are South America. Those are American. Those are on in our hemisphere. How did yeah. that stuff, you know, get into an Egyptian mummy system? And, and so, vice versa, you have Egyptian pottery ending up in Peru. <laughs> right. So, right. Ex- exactly. So, I mean, that to me, isn't that evidence enough? Of, well, of you'd think so, but they might say, well, yeah. circumstances. But I believe some DNA testing is uh, has taken place or is about to in that vicinity with this in mind. So that will be interesting to see. Uh, of course, it isn't well publicized. Well, I think I think really the thing is, and this has been the case with, with mainstream materialistic science for, for you know a couple centuries now, is if it goes against the narrative, people lose their jobs. And or their grants, at least. or their grants, or yeah. the, and you know they just stop making money. I mean, we had um, oh geez, what's his name on talking about giants? Uh, like about oh, Jason Jarrell. Yeah, we had Jason Jarrell yeah. on talking about giants in the Adena culture, and he was like, people are digging up skeletons all over the place, <laughs> like eight, yeah. like seven, eight foot tall people, and like you know elongated skulls and stuff. No one's saying anything about it. Well, that's it. You know, Jason, we were very interested to see that, because uh, as I say, we're based in Rhode Island here, and I'm very interested to see that you included poor old Mercy Brown uh, in the vampire case of uh, Exeter, Rhode Island, in uh, in, in the book. <laughs> I, never, I must say, I've never thought of poor old Mercy as a cryptid. However, uh, you know, I've contributed a little to the literature on that subject. Uh, of the, there was a, a New England vampire craze in the late, uh, all the way up to 1895. That, that's when uh, her case took place. So um, wh- what what are your thoughts on that? How come you included that uh, in a, with cryptids? Well, I, I included, the, included that. Uh, and in fact, uh, the, the story that, that I have in there doesn't say that Mercy Brown was a vampire. Right, right. I have that people thought Mercy Brown was a vampire. Exactly. That, that's why I, I, I included that, because I don't have enough vampire stories in <laughs> here. <laughs> that's great. No, it's wonderful. I mean, it's, uh, I know that um, you know, you, we can drive down from here and see someone stole the stone. Uh, but when I first wrote about that in 1979, uh, someone had effaced the pious epitaph that was on all these stones from that period. And uh, I thought that was rather telling, but... Um, I don't know. It's uh, it was a very sad story, and uh, that, that and all the alleged vampires of uh, of this this part of the world. Anyway, um, on the issue of uh, Rhode Island as well, um, we uh, are familiar with the term the Block Ness Monster, which is of course reference to Block Island <laughs> in southern Rhode Island. Here, uh, what? Uh, how, how did you find out about that? And and, and what, uh, what what's the significance for uh, witnesses when they see that one? Well, yeah, well, I, I, I was just—I mean, I was researching Rhode Island, and that, and, and that was one of the first ones actually to come up. Uh, yeah, the, the, the Block Ness monster was a uh, uh, what looked like it was a decomposing, uh, you know, it was a skeleton with decomposing flesh on it. That back in uh, 1996, it was pulled up by by a, uh, a fishing boat that was called uh, the Mad Monk. Um, Anyway, yeah. So they, yeah. they pulled it up, didn't know what to think of it, and, and brought it to the uh, to, to Block Island. Uh, somebody, uh, a scientist with uh, with the state, came and looked at it and said, "I I don't know what this is." Um, other scientists said it was probably a basking shark, 
Huh. But be- before this thing that was laid out on the beach to be displayed, um, before it could be proven not to be some sort of a cryptid, some people uh, stole it. Oh, yeah. Right. And they stole it because, you know, tourism was good for Block Island, and they didn't want it to be proven to be something, you know, something we know about, like oh, a basking yeah. shark. Yeah. Well, that's the place to be in the summer. <laughs> yeah. So uh, also in Rhode Island, uh, the uh, there have been a, a number of Bigfoot sighted. Ben himself. Uh, and, and we live uh, in Woonsocket, which is a uh, well. It's considered a city. It's not really very big, but uh, we're on the outskirts, and it, there are woods, uh, woods here and there. But this, there's no wilderness, really, to, not compared with where uh, you may be or, or out west. Um, and you know, Rhode Island is not like Missouri. Or I know that you pronounce it Missouri usually. Uh, no, there's an I on the end of it. So there uh, is an I. But yeah. uh, you know, you move from town to town here. We don't, counties don't mean anything. We're too small. And the whole state is only 48 miles long and 37 miles wide. And yet Bigfoot is seen here. Uh, if it is a flesh and blood creature, how, what, what say you on that? Well, I, here, when it comes to, and this is one of the things that, uh, you know, people throw out as evidence of, um, you know, of, of, of Bigfoot uh, being interdimensional, you know, being able to pop in and out, is the fact that I grew up playing in, in, in the woods, in trees, on, on land that we had. There were big batches of trees, and I could walk right by a deer within a couple of feet, and I wouldn't know it was there until it sprang up and took off running. True. And, and, and these things aren't, of course, you know, 150 pounds is a white-tailed deer. It's not nearly as big as, as a Bigfoot, but it's still a fairly decent-sized animal, and for me not to know it was there is is telling to the to the camouflage that that you know terrestrial animals have in the woods and if bigfoot is as smart as uh, as you know people think he is um, you know just naturally being able to to blend in with one's environment i i, I think that he could uh, bigfoot could hide in you know kind of sparse places so with 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 Rhode Island bigfoot has been spotted in in uh well, maybe not urban areas, but suburban areas all all across the country. Some people have said that they've seen him, like in in Colorado, picking uh, picking through garbage out of dumpsters behind restaurants. It's true, yeah, yeah. So yeah. I mean, uh, I, I think Bigfoot's clever enough to 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 hide even even in some place like Rhode Island. Yeah, I remember we had uh, one of the rare albino Bigfoot sightings. Uh, maybe what? Well, how far is Spring Lake from here? Maybe ten miles. Uh, a little less than that. Maybe a little less than yeah. that. And uh, you, we used to take you and your brother up there swimming. Oh, when, such when, we, good when we didn't go to the ocean, we went to Spring Lake, and that that was an area where, where uh, people saw a an albino Bigfoot. Uh, I believe it was in the seventies. And um, so I mean, uh, and and I I know members of the Rhode Island National Guard uh, on exercises in the so-called Great Swamp area, and uh, there is a lot of semi wilderness in, in a small state like this. And he said uh, they all saw Bigfoot, you know, clear as day in the, this great swamp area, as it's called, in southern Rhode Island. So, uh, so you're, you're probably, I'm sure you're right there, Jason. I mean, uh, who uh, really knows, though? So, right. No, this thing is, yeah. we don't. We hopefully we will find out at some point. Yeah. So, what what in your experience is is the absolutely weirdest cryptid you've ever documented? Oh, I think it is. Um, Oh, I'm trying to remember which state this was in, but oh, it was possibly New Mexico. Could have been Utah, someplace out west, someplace mm-hmm. out west where there's lots of lots of deserts and uh, and buttes. Um, 
there were uh, a couple of a couple of gentlemen. Uh, they were flying a, a small plane and landed on the top of a, of a really large butte, and uh, were just just walking around and, and taking in the view. And uh, they saw a uh, a creature that was I don't know fifteen plus feet uh, square and square square ish, huh. and it was it was breathing, labored, and it was it was semi transparent, and it it's breathing was was a bit labored and it was leaking like it was bleeding and another similar creature but larger flew over over them and over the top of this other creature and and floated down and picked it up and lifted it into the air and flew away they thought it was maybe um, uh, a small version of whatever these things were that had become injured and this larger one came and uh, came and rescued it uh, and there was also a very similar case in uh, in California. Uh, a man was uh, in the evening was was uh, surf fishing and took his took his haul back home and was cleaning them. And in the uh, you know the the dim light saw something very similar flying through the air. Except for this guy said it had a couple of you know eyes like you know cheap doll googly eyes stuck on the front of it. But it was semi-transparent, squarish, like a big flying carpet, and it just flew over the top of his house and, and you know, from the ocean and kept going. That is extremely strange. That, that's right out of H.P. Lovecraft. It, exactly. I, I read, um, trying to think of the author, it might have been Arthur, Arthur Machen, which he wrote horror about the same time that uh, uh, Lovecraft did. No, it wasn't Machen. It was somebody of that ilk, though, uh, who wrote a very similar st- story. This was back in the early days of, of flying, and it was about a pilot that went too high above the clouds. And there were a bunch of creatures exactly like were described in these two stories, floating above the clouds. Amazing. One of the things that comes up at times... Uh, Ambrose we'll Pierce. Sorry, it was Ambrose yeah. Pierce. That's Ambrose the Pierce, okay. One of the thing who, uh, he's, the one, he's the one who disappeared, I believe. It. Right. Yeah. Well, there you go. Enough said about that. But uh, <laughs> the uh, the the notion of creatures living in the atmosphere has been uh, speculated upon by um, astrobiologists, and albeit for other planets. But some of the UFO photos that we see, and, and we're big into crossover phenomena, as it's called, you know, uh, are very telling as far as uh, you know. For example, for example, we got a video in Pennsylvania. Uh, in May, uh, that four of us saw it, and it was extremely kind of mind wrenching in a way. I got the, we got the whole thing on video, and it was a uh, almost a, a, a glowing, brightly glowing haze with an object above it, and and it was not a hazy night; it was crystal clear, and it was moving across the sky and apparently changing shape, and. One wonders. Um, even Carl Sagan speculated about the exi- the existence of a plas- plasma-based life forms as opposed to carbon-based. So, in your travels, have you encountered uh, anything else like this that could be a life form that exists in the atmosphere that we don't know anything about or, or don't know much about? Well, maybe one uh, one other uh, in- encounter. Uh, I talked with a uh, a woman uh, from from uh, a suburb of Chicago I can't remember which one it is at this point uh, but her and her husband were, were driving home and they got into their neighborhood and she looked out the, the car window and saw something like 
you just described. It was uh, first you thought it was a strange cloud, but it, it was moving, and then it started changing from a cloud to more of a, a smoky, shadowy type uh, something. She said it was undulating, and there was a light, uh, you know, over the over the top of it, and uh, it changed shape a few times until it flew out of the neighborhood. Um, could there be? Yeah, absolutely. There could be something living in our atmosphere. Uh, it's you know, scientists have said there, you know, there's there's bacteria up there that we don't know about that's floating around. So mm-hmm. so why not? Uh, you know, why not some kind of creature? Sure. You know, the, the rods. I don't remember much about the the rod phenomena of what twenty years ago. Oh yeah, skyfish. Yeah, yeah, skyfish. So yeah. I mean. That's been talked about for quite a while. Well, we actually have uh, photos uh, from this this same trip that uh, were obviously you know moths uh, flying at, at speed, and uh, the way the the digital media will interpret these, and the digital media does interpret, uh, it looks just like skyfish. So I think a lot of the photos of them may be. Uh, misinterpreted moths, things of that kind. Although there are plenty of uh, eyeball sightings of, of creatures like that, so who knows? You're right, right. And I agree with the with the digital photography. I I trust uh, you know I, I trust film photography from back in the day. What I see from that, yeah. a heck of a lot more than I do from anything digital. I hear you there. Yeah, I grew up in journalism with Tri-X uh, film, which was very forgiving but very honest. Oh, I I, I developed tons of that. Yeah. Oh yeah. <laughs> You don't look old enough to have done. Anyway. Yeah, well, thank you. I appreciate yeah. that, but I am. <laughs> so, okay. Well, uh, before we burn up the hour here, we're almost done. Uh, please tell us about uh, your books and, and uh, your website, where people can find out more about you, Jason. All right. Well, yeah, my, my book, the one we're talking about, is Chasing American Monsters. Uh, yeah, I go through uh, every state and talk about uh, some of the popular monsters in the state. But I, as you mentioned before, I try to find tried to find some um, that were pretty obscure. Because, I mean, the, the people who are really interested in, uh, in cryptozoology already know the big ones. They, they want to know the, the obscure ones. Um, I've written uh, four more books uh, on uh, on the paranormal, mostly about ghosts, but uh, one about shadow people. Uh-huh. Uh, yeah, and, and all of these can be found at my website, jasonoffit.com. Uh, Ben's uh, holding up the book now for those who are uh, getting the TV feed. All right, terrific. Uh, yeah, I've also got you know written a few novels, and I guess I could throw this in as a companion piece. I wrote a book a few years ago called uh, uh, "How to Kill Monsters Using Common Household Items," which <laughs> is a parody survival guide. That's great. We'll have to get that one next time we go to Pennsylvania. So, just uh, in our last few minutes here, uh, we were intrigued by the White Screamer of Tennessee. <laughs> well, it's a. Uh, it's it's white and it screams. It's that's <laughs> one of the, one of one of the things about um, uh, uh, about a lot of cryptids is they produce these these strangest calls. Uh, and the white screamer is a um, it's it never really was seen directly. It was described as sort of a white mist, um, but it was the scream mostly that. Uh, that 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 attracted attention uh, mainly a, a farmer of a farmer who'd built a house out in in the country uh, you know cleared some trees started a farm he had a, a family with a number a number of children and um, this thing was screaming screaming night after night and finally he got fed up and uh, shot took took a shotgun and put a blast in the sky and and the screamer didn't shut up so he went out looking for it 
whatever this creature was, he was going to put an end to it. And it led him through the woods, and finally, he, you know, he was getting tired because it was a long walk, and finally it led him back to his house. And he could still hear the screams, but the screams were a little bit different. And he realized they were the screams of his family, and they were coming from inside the house. And he rushed to the house and opened the door, and his family had been brutally butchered. Um, this, the white screamer, that has been kind of uh, referred to more as a banshee. I'm just thinking banshee, yeah. Yeah, which uh, there are a couple of different banshee um, banshee you know sightings that that I have in this book, which which kind of raises something interesting because banshees are uh, of Irish uh, from Irish folklore. It seems like whenever people move from one place to another, they don't just bring themselves and their family and some you know um, you know clothes and, and some antiques. They also bring their monsters with them. And banshees were one of those. Uh, the Snallygaster was one. Um, so yeah, the 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 Tommyknockers of Pennsylvania and California are, are from Wales. So yeah, whenever people go someplace, they they bring monsters with them. Well, not only are you very good at uh, cryptozoology, but uh, you're good. At your your psychic powers are very uh, adept today. Because I was just about to ask that uh, about the, the cultural connections of what people experience, and I, uh, there's not really not time to get into that now. But there's that, and there's also the notion of thought forms. Maybe in our last two minutes here. Um, the the whole Slender Man phenomenon, and we had Nick Redfern on to talk about this, uh, an Internet phenomenon uh, created on the net, and all of a sudden people start seeing it. Uh, just in the last few minutes here, uh, what are your thoughts on thought forms? I mean, in the sense of, you know, we uh, if you imagine it, you can see it. I mean, what's uh, are we creating these things in a way, uh, culturally or through the collective unconscious or whatever? Well, yeah, I, it, it's... After you know researching this stuff for years, I think if people put enough attention on something, it can manifest. And and the the thing that that people see the Slender Man, the, the same thing happened with with the Black Eyed Kids. Uh, people started seeing more and more of them. Were there more? Do these things even exist, or are we willing them into existence? There there are. I think entities out there that if enough attention is play is paid, it will turn itself. You know, it will appear as that entity to show itself to us because it knows that's what we're afraid of, and and that's what it wants. It wants to feed off fear, and it's giving us what we want. Well, that makes sense. We see that all the time in poltergeist cases too. You know, well, right. Jason, we're just about out of time. Thank you for a fascinating discussion, and we'll be in touch off the air. Okay, and, and terrific. Give, give us your website one more time www.jasonoffutt.com. Very good. Thanks again. As I say, we'll be in touch off the air. Great. Thank you very much for having me on. Okay. All right, everybody. Let's get to our announcements here. Uh, we're still working to restore 11 years, 11-plus uh, years of recorded shows after a, a serious cyber attack on our show website, BehindTheParanormal.com. However, we're already back to 2013 at this point, and uh, we know a lot of people who like to listen to those, so thanks for your patience, and we'll keep working on it. And they do go back to uh, 08 uh, on several different stations, including CBS Radio and, and WON here. So just um, uh, thank you for your patience again. 
Alrighty, and we've got quite a bit on the docket. So, on Tuesday, July 16th, my dad and I uh, will be at the Linfield Public Library in Linfield, Massachusetts, to speak about UFOs, mostly local cases. And uh, that will be at uh, 6.30 p.m., and details on the public event uh, will be at our events page at BehindTheParanormal.com. On Tuesday, August 6th at 7 p.m., uh, we'll be at the Nashville Public Library in Nashville, New Hampshire, to present uh, a program entitled Extreme UFO Encounters in New Hampshire and Beyond. They love us at libraries this year. Mm, and right after that, on Saturday, August 17th at 2 p.m., uh, we will be at the Haverhill Public Library in Haverhill, Massachusetts, to present on Extreme UFO Encounters in Massachusetts and Beyond. Uh, my forthcoming book, Dancing Past the Graveyard, Poltergeists, Parasites, Parallel Worlds, and God, will be released on August 28th and will be in stores after that and will feature at our fall events. It's available for pre-order on Amazon.com, BarnesandNoble.com, and all the other online retailers. And the official release event will take place with our good friends at the Toadstool Bookshop in Keene, New Hampshire, on Saturday, September 21st, beginning at 2 p.m. But before that will be the 2019 Exeter UFO Festival, where we will speak of the eighth or speak for the eighth year in a row, as well as doing our fourth annual live broadcast from this show with a panel of speakers on Sunday, September 1st, uh, from the Exeter, uh, New Hampshire Town Hall, which is very historic. Uh, this great event is sponsored by the Exeter Area Kiwanis Club and benefits local children's charities. Uh, other events this fall will take place at the Book Club Bookstore in South Windsor, Connecticut, Book Lovers Gourmet in Webster, Massachusetts, and the Blackstone Public Library, both right here in our home listening area. And, of course, the Greater New England UFO Conference in Lemmerster, Massachusetts, on Columbus Day weekend, uh, where I'm told I'm going to be the MC. I'm looking forward to that. Wonderful event. Uh, and also the Tewksbury, Massachusetts Public Library and Mount Hope Farm in Bristol, Rhode Island in October. And next April, I'm looking forward to that, uh, we'll be back at the New England Parafest in Kittery, Maine. Uh, more, te- more details as we go. We haven't been at that event for a few years. Indeed. So, uh, get our books, including Behind the Paranormal, Everything You Know is Wrong, and Behind the Paranormal 2, Bigfoot, Mothman, and Monsters You've Never Heard of. Uh, they, they're available from online retailers and in some stores. Uh, but for autographed copies, you can visit our online bookstore at BehindTheParanormal.com. I think Jason uh, discovered a few monsters that we didn't include in BP2 as well. Well, look at that. And the Paranormal 2. So there's always, uh, there's always a bigger fish. Um, also at BehindTheParanormal.com, you can find out more about the show in many cases over the years, our public appearances and how to book us. And you'll find, uh, once they're all restored, nearly 850 free recorded shows uh, of, from our... Um, Years on the air, 11 plus years on the air, including our four and a half year run on CBS radio, along with special shows, podcasts, and interviews that have never aired. And there are links to uh, several charities that we have adopted on the show, uh, including USA Cares, Canadian Veterans Advocacy, Helping Haiti's Orphans, Youth Mentoring Connection in Los Angeles, and the Crohn's and Colitis Foundation of America and the Sisterhood of Ground Zero. Yeah, particularly you mentioned Sisterhood of Ground Zero. Now, there were hearings before. Um, Congress this past uh, over the past few weeks of uh, the um, uh, 9/11 first responders and responders who just are not getting the PTSD care they need uh, and uh, they are an, uh, sort of a um, I, I don't know almost a forgotten group of heroes and so the Sisterhood of Ground Zero is a great chapter again go to the charities page at behindtheparanormal.com and there is a link whatever you can do is much appreciated so Ben what's cooking for next week so next week uh, will be our 800th show 
and we will uh, have the History Channel's Matt Blakely in studio. No, Maddie Blake. Maddie Blake, jeez. Yeah. Maddie Blake in studio, <laughs> li- uh, uh, in studio to talk about the uh, Curse of Oak Island, which we actually have never covered on the show before. Yeah, that's amazing, all these years. Uh, we leave you this afternoon with a thought attributed to none other than Abraham Lincoln. In the end, it's not the years in your life that count. It's the life in your years, unquote. I'm Paul Eno. And I'm Ben Eno, and thanks for joining us on our great cosmic journey, and we shall see you behind the paranormal. Return to this radio frequency 167 hours from now for another edition of Behind the Paranormal.